excited to preach or whatever it is I'm about to do <laughs> with you this morning. Thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity. And um, we mentioned last week, Pastor Dan and I, in our conversation about Advent, preparing you for Advent, that we would be preaching from specific texts. And these texts are going to be texts that for hundreds of years have traditionally been designed uh, to be preached on the weeks coming up to Christmas, which we call Advent, for the specific purpose of preparing us in a way. And also, I'd just like to say, I see Roberto in the house from Brazil. I just saw you, my friend. Good to see you guys. Oh, and Jerry, good to see you guys. Welcome. So sorry, I just, I was like, well, hello. Um, but hey, so uh, I'm going to be preaching from this text, and it's a bit of a challenge, um, Preaching from the minor prophets or, or the major prophets, the prophets in general, is always complicated because uh, they're abrasive. <laughs> they say some things, y'all. Uh, they're, um, they're not cute and they're not near as generally uplifting as the Proverbs, you know. But they have what I believe is a very, very important message for us. And today, I'm calling this message, Hope in the Unpredictable God. Hope in the unpredictable God. So if you missed last week, I'll br uh, briefly frame Advent for you. So Advent is a season in the church calendar, and it's the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And the purpose of Advent is to prepare us, the people of God, to go into Christmas well. That's the easiest way to say it. That Advent is, is not something that we do religiously to earn anything, or we don't do it by any kind of obligation. This is an invitation for us to enter into. And if you're here and you say, man, I would love to do more, then uh, in the newsletter and the website, we have things, resources that went out, ways that you can participate with your family. And if you're perfectly content to just say, this year, I'm happy to participate on Sunday mornings, but I want to see more of what this thing is that is perfectly fine. Um, so we're going to have some more scripture reading in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to continue talking about and lighting these candles, and we're going to keep preaching from these texts, all with the goal of preparing our hearts as a body for Christmas, preparing our hearts to receive Christ. And that happens in a number of ways through Advent. Number one, uh, if you don't realize that you need a savior, then his coming doesn't do a whole lot for you. So one of the things that Advent does is it prepares us in a way that confronts our needs. And it confronts our need for a savior. And in, in these texts over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear how we, O oh Lord, desperately need you. We need you as a savior, we need you as deliverer, we need you as healer, we need all of who you are, and we can't do any of it on our own apart from the Holy Spirit. Number two, as Everett uh, exhorted us earlier, it teaches us how to really hope. And I think for those of us in, um, in a society where generally, yes, we have difficulty, but, but generally most of us in the eyes of the rest of the world are very wealthy, um, Hope is being excited about getting a particular Christmas gift. And, and I don't say that in a way that diminishes any of our pain or real things that we hope for. But we have to recognize that there are places in the world where the only thing good in their life is the hope 
that Jesus is coming again and will one day make all of their mess right. That there are people in third world countries and in persecuted countries that they don't have any of the luxuries that we have. They don't have the luxury to come and sit under the proclamation of the word and singing and coming to the table without fearing for their life. So it teaches us what it really is to hope and what it really is to long for something deeply. And that for some of us is a little uncomfortable. For me, that's uncomfortable. And we're going to talk about that a little more this morning. And also, Advent is about learning to live faithfully when we're wondering where God is. When we look around and we, go, we sing these songs like, everything changes when your kingdom comes, and we look around and we go, you know, it doesn't really seem to be that true. Because we can't always identify and we cannot in this time and space always see the ways that the kingdom of God is changing things. And that's going to be the core of what this message is about this morning. Particularly, this message is going to address lament, which over the last year we have done quite a bit, actually. And, and I think it's a wonderful, healthy habit for us as the people of God. And some of us have never been given permission to complain to God. So first thing this morning is let me give you permission. It is okay for you to complain to God. Because if you don't, you're going to complain to other people. And God is like the one person who can handle it. And the one person who can do something about all of our frustrations, whether they're valid or not. It doesn't matter. And, and so this morning we're going to talk quite a bit about lament. And I just, for those of you who have never been given permission or never experienced that, that, that it's okay to tell God, God, things are wrong and you need to do something about this. And God, my life is a mess right now and you need to come down here and do something or else I'm not going to make it. Let me just tell you, God, God's not scared by that. God is not scared by that. And we're going to get into the nuance of that here in a couple of minutes. But setting the stage, that is such an important thing. When we lament, we're acknowledging that we believe God is the only one who can actually do something about the situation. So let me set up this text that Ellie just read so eloquently for us this morning. So this is from Isaiah 64. And at this point in time, Israel has just been released from captivity. So generally speaking, you would think that this is an awesome time. They've spent 70 years in captivity, and they've been released, and this particular passage is upon their arrival back in Jerusalem. And they go, you know, God, we thought we were coming back to something different than this. Because while they were gone and while they were in captivity, Jerusalem had literally been destroyed. It is rubble. The temple has been destroyed. The, the city walls have been destroyed. And it's nothing like the city that they left. So they're coming back with high expectations into a situation that is perhaps more despairing than it was before they left. Because you have to realize for the people of Israel that this is an identity crisis. This isn't the same as if, as if one of us, for some, under some terrible circumstances, loses our home. That, as sad as it is, we would build another home. But for the people of Israel, what made them distinctly Israel as the people of God was the temple and Mount Zion. And that this is the place where God, Yahweh, dwells. This is their identity. This is who they are. So when they come back and they find out it's all been destroyed and God let it happen, they have a crisis of faith. So they begin crying out to God, and I'm not going to reread all of what Ellie did, but some of, these, some of these verses. God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, 
that the mountains would tremble before you. Verse two, it's so convenient right in the middle of the passage that there's a page turn. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down and make yourself known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. This is not normally the way most of us pray, perhaps, maybe you do. And uh, if you do, I would say, and on a, on a very serious note, I would say, well done. Well done. Um, it has taken me a long time to get to the place where I don't just say what I think God wants to hear in prayer. And uh, I think that this is a mark of mature faith, to be quite honest, that they know the heart of God so well that they know that he's more committed to them, whether they say the right things or not. So they're not afraid. So in this part here, they're, they're addressing God, oh, that you would come down. But really, the Hebrew verbs here, and I'm not going to get too much into the mechanics and the weeds, but really, this also could be translated, oh, God, if you would have had come down, none of this would have happened. If you had rent the heavens, this wouldn't have happened. But since you didn't, come down now and rent the heavens now in our midst. And what they're recalling here is they're calling on the most powerful display of God, which for them at this time was deliverance from Egypt. God delivered them from Egypt, and then shortly thereafter met them, Moses first, and then all of the people at the base of Mount Sinai. And in the text in Exodus, it talks about how the mountain seemed to quake before them. So this is what they're drawing on. They're drawing on their history, which is a sermon in and of itself that Pastor Jade kind of preached a few weeks ago in Deborah, that they're drawing on what they have, and that is their memory of the character and the nature and the exploits of God. So they, they go about this prayer, they begin this prayer, basically saying, God, you're in action has allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. How could you do this? So what do they do and how do they pray? They pray out, to, they cry out to God and they draw upon their memories, as we just said. That's the biggest display of God's power, so that's what they pray for. Why settle for anything less, right? The problem is that God almost never acts the same way twice. Almost never. Now, now you'll hear common good theology that people will say, God never changes. And what they mean is his character and his nature don't change. That who he is, the essence of who he is, does not change throughout time. What they don't tell you is the way he acts does change. For instance, in I believe Deuteronomy, it might be Numbers, uh, the children of Israel are wandering about in the wilderness, right? And they need water. So Moses cries out and says, God, what do we do? And he says, strike the rock. So Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out of the rock. Later, same thing happens. God says, speak to the rock. Moses says, yes, sir, I'll strike the rock. He strikes the rock, and God says, that's not what I said. I said, speak to the rock. And we may think that that's silly, but it was actually a serious enough sin that that's the thing that kept Moses out of the promised land. The expectation for God to do the same thing that he did last time is um, perhaps not the way that we should always look to God. Now, what I am not saying is that it is wrong to pray those things. I think clearly here, this is a faithful prayer, that they're drawing on what they know to be true. But what we're going to discover in just a minute, the most important thing is that you say, God, I ask that you do this, but... And they have open hands in their requests. So let's get back 
to the notes here before I get to preaching or something. This prayer is both lament for what happened and longing for what they now need to happen. And this is important because we live so much of our lives in this place. So little of our lives seemingly is on true mountaintops, but it seems like much of it is lived either in valleys or just in these plateaus. These just normal times, uh, you may have heard pastors say sometimes the, the glory of the ordinary, you know, this, this normal place in life where we go, God is good, yes, and sometimes I see it, but ultimately, man, I'm really hoping there's more than just what I'm experiencing in this moment. So much of life is lived in that place, and we have to learn how to pray faithfully from that place. Advent is the experience, a similar experience for us. Christ has come, yes, but it sure seems like the world is still a mess. Have any of you watched five minutes of news in the last year? The world is a mess. And that's not being pessimistic. That's being real. We need God. We need God, perhaps more than we ever had before. We need him. We cry out for God to come and to make things right because it's all that we can do. And we're taught in scripture to do so. So we remind ourselves of his saving acts in history. And that's what grounds our hope. So then what happens? Where do we go from here in the prayer? And I I was reading this to Bonnie last night and she was like, man, this prayer seems all over the place. And it kind of is. And sometimes faithful prayer is like that. So let's look at the end of verse 5 here and see what happens. So they're complaining and they're describing, God, we want you to do this and we want you to do this. And then they say, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean. What's happening right here? They're crying out for God to come down to confront his enemies. And then they realize, oh snap, we're your enemies. God, if you come down and confront your enemies, that means us too. I mean, they're, they're realizing, they're learning to recognize midstream in prayer that, that this isn't all a mess just because of them. This is a mess because we sinned and we were taken into captivity. And while we were gone, when we should have been inhabiting the city, it was destroyed. So God, maybe like, can we, t- uh, you know, temporarily rescind the first half of our prayer, you know? And I think that this is important for us for, for a couple of reasons. One, we need to recognize that we have all played a role in some of this mess that is around us. None of us alone has done it all, but we've all in some way, shape, or form contributed because we are sinners and we are in need of grace every day. But also, I think we need to hear this because faithful prayer, although it comes in with very specific things that it asks and sometimes seemingly even, seemingly even commands of God, there is this openness to be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit at the drop of a hat. God, we're crying out for this, and then we're sensitive enough to realize, oh Lord, oh Lord, I have not realized how I have contributed to this. And oh Lord, I have not recognized how I am such a sinner in need of grace. 
that faithful prayer comes with that kind of openness, not only to the power of the Holy Spirit, but to our neighbor, to the person sitting next to us, openness that their perspective might shed some light on our prayers that we hadn't earlier thought of. And this is what it is to be people of faithful prayer, that prayer is not just two one-way monologues where we're just saying things to God and he's saying things to us. It's not that kind of transmission. That prayer is an engagement where, just like a human conversation, that we've all been at this place, right? Where when the person beside us that we're talking to is talking, we're just thinking about the next thing we want to say. And then they say something and it goes, oh, that actually changes the whole conversation. Faithful prayer is like that. That we have that kind of openness when God wants to drop something, when God wants to speak something, when he wants to reorder and realign the things that we're asking for, we have ears to hear that. This is one of the reasons that Advent must precede Christmas, because it highlights our need for a Savior and the way that we have been complicit with some of what is messed up all around us. In prayer, we can and should be honest and bold, and I'll add even specific to God. I totally believe that. This is not everyone second guess all your prayers and eventually we all quit praying. That is not what this is about. This is about be specific and be bold, but don't be arrogant and entitled. Have enough humility and openness for the Lord to touch us because we don't see everything. More on that in just a minute. This is sobering because we're submitting ourselves in such a way to God that opens us up to see things we did not previously see. We're being vulnerable, and we have to wrestle with God in prayer. Pastor Jade and I were actually sitting in our class on Thursday, and completely, it was so random, the conversation turned, and our professor brought up this story that I'm about um, to bring up, the story in Genesis 32, where Jacob is wrestling with God. And I immediately just thought, this is part of this conversation this morning. So in Genesis 32, we see that uh, Jacob is wrestling with God. Matter of fact, I'm going to go there. I think we've got a couple of minutes. I'm cruising. Genesis 32, we're going to read verses 24 is where we're going to start. Genesis 32, 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. He said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Then the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Now I've read this story and heard this story preached hundreds of times, but I had never considered what was brought up on Thursday morning in that class. So we hear the story about Jacob being blessed, and it's Oh, so awesome. How many of us have prayed for the blessing of the Lord? Have we ever considered what actually happened to Jacob when he received his blessing? 
that he was given a handicap, that Jacob was given a permanent disability in his physical body. Now, that wasn't the blessing of the Lord. It was the sign. It was the evidence of the blessing of the Lord. God's not sadistic. He doesn't say, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to harm you. But that was the sign of the blessing. And furthermore, God chooses to name his people after Israel. When this story introduces, I mean, what a random place to introduce the name that God is going to call his people. He doesn't name his people after Abraham, those of great faith. He doesn't name his people after Moses, those who will see and experience great displays of God's power, right? He names his people those who are willing to wrestle with me. Israel means one who wrestles. God calls us and names us after a people who will be willing to get into the yoke of prayer and the yoke of messy life and wrestle with God and get into God and say, God, I know your character and your character is not like this. This is actually what we see in the story of Jonah, but the reverse. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And and Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh because I know you And I know that if I go, you'll save those people. And I don't want you to save those people. That's what we are called to do, but with maybe like a little better attitude than Jonah, you know, a submitted attitude. But that's what it is to wrestle with God. And that's what he wants from us. Lament is biblical. Wrestling, longing, crying out, naming the things that are wrong in our lives is important. Naming those things and allowing God to put your name on those things that you've experienced that are terrible and wrong and a result of evil and brokenness in the world. That is essential to faithfully living the Christian walk. God's blessings now don't always look or feel like blessings. And conversely, everything that looks and feels like a blessing isn't necessarily from God. And I think this is where this idea where I named the sermon Hope in an Unpredictable God, this is where this really comes into play because you and I pray for things all the time. Hopefully, you and I pray for things all the time. And we cannot help but frame our expectations that when I say heal, that's what this means. When I say deliver, that's what this means. When I say provide God, I mean this. When I say provide God, I mean like extra zeros on the ends of the check. That's what I mean, God, when I say provide. And God says, well, when I say provide and when I answer your prayer, I mean, I'm going to wait till the last minute and I'm going to have somebody drop something off anonymously at your doorstep. That's what I mean. Is that not what you mean? And that's what it is to get in and wrestle with God, to allow the framing of our expectations to be changed as we experience his goodness. We can only wrestle with God, get this, because he is willing to enter into the story with us. So in that story of Jacob, it talks about a ladder. But the funny thing is God came down to Jacob to wrestle with him. We can only even have these experiences because God is willing to come down among us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate not that God now takes us out of everything difficult, but that God says, my redemption right now looks like me being in the middle of it so close that I'm inside of you. That's what God's redemption looks like in the now. And the hope of Advent, that candle represents... The ultimate is that God will redeem it in such a way, making wrong things right. 
He'll eventually make it all right. And right now it doesn't seem so often like that is happening. But his promise to you is that he is closer than the air that you breathe. And that is our current hope. In Isaiah 64, God doesn't answer them by giving what they want or what they ask for. But he does change them through it. Note, in verse 5, we just read, he changes them. They're aware of their sin, and they repent. And ultimately, God is much more after us being open and repenting and allowing him to touch and change and transform us than yanking us out of every uncomfortable situation that we come across in our lives. And in they're crying they realize that they are sinful and in need of God. And I think this morning that this is perhaps uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. But it's necessary. It's necessary for us to fully enter into Christmas that we confront our sin and that we confront the ways that we have allowed evil in our own hearts and evil in our own homes but that is not the end. Thank God. So how does this prayer end? In verse 8, there is a yet Lord. And any time that there's that kind of conjunction in Scripture, we have to pay attention because it signifies, just like in our language, a shift. Yet Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. There is a recognition that God is shaping them in ways that they cannot see. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, there is an, another reference to the potter and the clay. And at that point, it's a very negative reference. It's, you're the, you're the potter and we're the clay and we don't like it, God. <laughs> this one is more of a, a concession. It's a, it's a submitting. It's a saying, but God, you are the potter and we are the clay and we know not what you are making of us, but we trust you. We trust that it is something greater than what it feels like right now. We trust that at the end, when you're done shaping, and when this clay pot or whatever it is is dried out, that we'll be useful for something in a way that we weren't useful before you put your hands on us. And that is what wrestling with God is all about. Advent is the time when we look around for the activity of God present among us, recognizing that much of it is happening when we are unaware. And usually, this work is not obvious. And when it is obvious, it's only in part. Uh, if you guys were here a few weeks ago, Pastor Brent and Jana Sharp uh, spoke about six weeks ago. The pastor that they co-pastored their church with, that they uh, launched their church about 10 years ago in Tulsa with, is a guy by the name of Ed Gunger, and he told this story a few years ago on an Advent podcast that for a season of life, he would carry around a little Ziploc bag full of about 20 jigsaw puzzle pieces from a 500-piece puzzle. And he would carry them around in a clear bag in his pocket as a remembrance that this is what our life is like now that we don't carry around with us the whole cover of the puzzle, that we only, each of us, have a few pieces. And from those pieces, we can kind of tell whether it's a landscape or a portrait or a cityscape or something, but really we have no clue how it all fits together. And that is what our lives are like now. And ultimately, as Christians, we are able to live that way because of this. 
because of hope in the character and the nature of God that he is coming again to make things right and that he is good on his promises. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that now we see dimly, as, as if we're looking through a glass darkly, but then on the return, upon the return of Christ, upon the new creation being here in full, we will see in full as God sees us now in full. And guys, that is the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can walk through things that seem to make no sense to us in the here and now, and we can walk through struggles and difficulties, and we can walk through long periods of time where it seems like God is completely inactive, and we can suffer trauma, we can have loss, we can face bankruptcy, all of these things. This is how Paul in Philippians that we preached a couple of months ago was able to, to preach from a jail cell, rejoice. Because we have the hope that Christ is coming again to make things right. And yet the struggle is that we don't live then, we live now. We live now. And we are in the chaos. And we are in the fray. Some of us of having lost jobs. Some of us of living with chronic illness. Some of us with living month to month with barely enough money to make it work. Some of us with extreme disappointments in people in situations, and maybe even in God. And I'm here to tell you that that is okay. That's okay. That doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. It doesn't mean that you didn't pray enough, that you're not doing enough. It means that we live in a broken world and that God is not done working yet. That's what that means. That speaks to the future. This Advent, our hope in closing, is that God hears us. That God hears us. That Israel cried out and God heard them. And God responded, perhaps not in the way that they liked. God didn't come down like the sovereign hand in some video game and just plop a new Jerusalem right in the middle. But he came down into them. And he came down and continued forming them into the people he was calling them to be that would eventually usher in the temple, Jesus Christ. Our other Advent hope is that God is present now even when we can't see or feel him. That his way of redemption is sometimes not prevention or escape, but it is always working toward transformation. We have to know that the ultimate for God in the here and now is our transformation into the image of his son. Not necessarily delivering us out of circumstances, although that does happen sometimes. And man, I love it when that happens. Oh, that's so good. But our last hope is that Christ is coming again to make all things right. And there are some things in the here and now that will never seem to be right. Things like death in the here and now are final. But in eternity, God has a way of even reframing and restoring that which has been lost to us now, in the here and now. So this Advent season, I urge you, to remember what God has done. And like Israel, cry out with those things in mind. Speak to those things. Name those things. Name those things in Scripture. God, you are the God who delivered your people out of Israel. You are the God who met Moses on Mount Sinai. You are the God that graced your people with the law. You are the God that, and fill in the blank as much as you can, but also look for what God is doing right now around you. Pray for eyes to see. God, I know that I will never in the here and now see in full, but God, let me see in part. Let me see in part what you're doing in my spouse when they drive the heck 
Do they drive me crazy? God, let me see what you're doing in my kids when it seems like nothing I'm saying is sticking. God, let me see what you're doing in me when I continue to screw up over and over and over. God, let me see what you're doing in my church when I don't understand half the things they're doing. God, let me understand why you have me in this dead-end job. What are you doing with the people around me in this dead-end job? God, what are you doing? And you keep naming those things, and you keep asking for those things, and you keep praying for eyes to see and ears to hear. And that is faithful prayer. And last, this Advent season, hope for God, what God will do. Hope for what God will do in the future. And that takes courage, as Everett said earlier today. There are times in life when it's all we can do to survive. And that is what the body of Christ is for. You keep showing up into this place or some other church, or some other grouping of the people of God, and over time, you will be surprised at how your strength comes back. You'll be surprised at how you can learn to hope again, and how you can have courage to ask God for things again. So with all of this in mind, let me pray for you, and then I'm going to invite Jordan up uh, to lead us to the table. God, I pray that you would do something so much more than I could ever do with this text and with these words and with these stories. Lord, I pray over your people right now and for the ways uh, that they are fighting to keep hope alive. I pray for them. I pray for grace and mercy to surround them, to fill them, to touch them from the head of, from their head to their feet. And I pray, Lord, that you would provide them strength to hope again, that you would provide them courage to be bold in your presence, and to wrestle with you, knowing that our hip too might be touched, and that we might be marked in such a way that seems to disable us, but always speaks to a testimony of a true encounter with God. And I pray that for these people, I pray that for myself, and I pray that for this church. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who wrestle with you for the things around us that are a mess in this world. And I pray, Lord, that in the ways that it is possible now, would you use us to touch and to change a broken world. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.